Well, welcome to the podcast. My name is Father Bill W. I'm an Episcopal priest here in Austin, Texas, uh, in long-term recovery. And uh, the purpose of these podcasts is to uh, go a little bit deeper into the history of AA, the psychology behind AA and the steps, and uh, maybe give you a different slant on some of the spiritual elements that uh, relate to the, the journey we call recovery. I did want to uh, inform people we do have a new uh, video up on our website. I'd really encourage you to go and check that out. It's at Two-Way Prayer and go to workshop and look at the, the new video. It runs about 40 minutes and uh, would love to have some feedback from you on that. Have it up there. I think it's going to be a, a great help to, to many, many people. So we are in the process of a, a series. We're doing it with uh, Dr. Ian McCabe. He is a, oh my God, his background is phenomenal. It's a, he's a Jungian analyst, a clinical psychologist, uh, a barrister, which is a lawyer, I guess, across the pond, AA history. And, uh, and, and so he's a marvelous guest to kind of bring some of these factors that I spoke about earlier together. And so what we're gonna be doing is going through the 12 steps but from a Jungian perspective is what I hope we will draw from this. Ian has a, a book out called Carl Jung and Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, The 12 Steps as a Spiritual Journey of Individuation. And we will discuss later, what does the individuation really mean? What, what, what's going on there with that? So I uh, thought I'd begin with a, a quick review See, see, to me, this Jungian perspective helps us uh, understand the, the psychic change. It's mentioned in the big book, you know, how to go a, a conversion experience, a psychic change. Jung has a patient by the name of Roland Hazard. He's, he's not doing well in therapy. And he says, Roland, you're hopeless. Uh, you need a psychic change, a spiritual experience, conversion. Uh, go get one. And, and he sends him back. Uh, Roland gets involved one way or another with the Oxford group. And they were interested in changing people at a, at a very, very deep level. That, of course, leads to Bill Wilson coming into the Oxford group himself. And um, Wilson credits steps two through 11 to the Oxford group. He said, I got him from there, from Sam Shoemaker. But step one, he does not. And so step one, I suspect uh, he would really credit to Dr. William Silkworth and perhaps uh, a little bit to William James. So we're going we're to touch on those two uh, fellows uh, in this episode. And Silkworth, we'll start with him, treated hundreds of alcoholics back in the 20s and 30s. He's at Towns Hospital. And uh, Wilson was there uh, four times uh, before he got sober. So as we're back in the 20s and 30s, and uh, he had what is called, he called an allergy theory. And he said that alcoholism comes in two parts. It's an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. And this is what kind of made it into the, into the big book and the doctor's opinion there, eh? So there's a, a physical response to taking that first drink. Uh, and that in, in the alcoholic creates a craving. But then there's a mental part, you know, an obsession part. And that sends the alcoholic back to doing it again, uh, in spite of repeated attempts to get sober or to moderate, uh, and, and he's unsuccessful. 
So, um, Ian, I'd like us to start perhaps uh, with the physical part of, of the illness, because I know you've treated a, a good number of uh, alcoholics and addicts over the years, and help us, help us understand what's going on physically uh, with the addict. Eh? I have found that many people with alcohol and addiction problems have got parents or grandparents who have similar problem. So there is what I would call the genetic component. Now, if you're the daughter of a father who is alcoholic, you have a one in seven chance of becoming an alcoholic. So there's a genetic factor there. We'll call that the predisposition. So if alcoholism is a biopsychosocial disorder, I believe that trauma is a fundamental aspect of it. So if you have someone whose father is an alcoholic, I'm not being sexist, I haven't got any statistics on mothers, but if you have got someone whose father is an alcoholic, they're traumatized in some way, not unusual in an alcoholic household to be traumatized. Mm -hmm. And then if there's a social component, that would be behavioral, watching people drinking, taking it as being normal. So if you have those three factors, the physical would be the predisposition. And then the behavioral would be uh, watching people and the social would be similarly taking it to be quite normal. Um, on the social level, one would think, hey, that's a bit unfair that you haven't got a father who's an alcoholic yet you become. A, an alcoholic through social drinking. Um, for, so when I lived in the Castro in San Francisco, I noticed the bars, which is a predominantly gay area. I noticed the bars were packed to the hills every night with um, men uh, drinking and late at night quite heavily, it would appear. So I had read that one in three gay men have an alcohol problem? And is that the social aspect of it? And is it, does that come about simply by, by drinking frequently in bars? I'd be open to that, but I think behind it all, I'm still going in favor of the physical genetic component. And that when a person um, reaches a certain age, 14, 15, 16, and they have their first drink, it seems to have a special impact on them. For example, we can quote from even Carl, Carl Jung himself. It, it, has, it has had a special impact on him. Speaking to many people who have alcohol problems, they say the first drink they had at 14, 15, 16 was the first time they were able to relax, to be themselves and to not feel apart, but to be, be feel a part of. And Bill, Bill Wilson himself talks about this the sense of, of anxiousness and nervousness he had at a party yeah. and had a drink. And so many people then have this re reaction who are true alcoholics. They can remember their first ecstatic feeling from drinking. And the brain is still developing at this age. You, you said at the teenage stage. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we've learned over the years is the earlier one starts drinking, the more malleable is the brain and it's, it's carving pathways in relation to the alcohol that uh, have a more profound effect. Uh, so that's, that's another fact. It's one of the reasons they say, you know, if you, if you can delay the drinking, it, it is helpful 
they do say the brain really isn't formed until about the age of 25. And most yeah. states and most countries have an age of 18 where they permit drinking. Uh, yeah. So there's some, some understanding behind that, but it would be very difficult yeah. to start raising. I, 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 I'm hoping my brain is still developing so that <laughs> there are parts there still need. There is, there is, there is an interesting point that people say that their, their, their sort of emotional development is then stunted from the age they started drinking. Yeah, I've come across that. Do you, do, you, do you find some validity to that? I mean, I know we're immature. That's one of the one of the characteristics. We'll get into that in a, in, in a moment. But um... I, I I think I think sometimes people with alcohol problems berate themselves a little bit too much yeah, and say, "I'm that. still a fourteen year old," and this is just common parlance. I don't know if there is any research to prove that. Um, but certainly I would hope that by joining AA, any, any um, deficiencies in social development are made up for very quickly after being in AA for a period of time. Because I think one way, it's one way of looking at recovery is, is and Jungian therapy is to develop a more mature uh, attitude, relationship to the world, to yourself. Uh, so it's all going in that direction, uh, we would hope. You commented on some of the first drink experiences, and I, I did want to quote from Wilson's. Uh, most people probably have not come across this, so uh, I think uh, they will find it interesting. I think you said Wilson didn't begin drinking until he was about 21. He's, he's in the army, uh, second lieutenant, uh, I believe, and um, he's at a party, and he's nervous restless, irritable, discontent, all right, uh, feeling very awkward. But then someone offers him a drink, and here is what he says. He says, so I took it, and another one, and then lo, the miracle, that strange barrier that had existed between me and all men and women, even the closest, seemed to instantly go down. I felt that I belonged where I was that I belonged to life. I belonged to the universe. I was a part of things at last. Oh, the magic of those first three or four drinks. I became the life of the party. I actually could please the guests. I could talk freely, volubly. I could talk well, but I got thoroughly drunk. I passed out. <laughs> There, 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 there's an entry into um, a euphoric state. I mean, that was my experience with the first drink, or first drunk, rather, first, first drunk. Uh, I won, uh, I was 12. I, I, I won a bottle of wine at a church bazaar. That's how I knew I had a vocation to the priesthood, you know. I took the bottle home, uh, my, a buddy and myself, uh, got drunk out of our minds, puked my guts out, but it made such a profound effect. I remember, I bet on number 22 on, on, on the board game, you know, where they flip the wheel. I remember everything about that night because magic happened to me. You know, have you come across that with, with some of your clients as you've worked with them? Uh, absolutely. Um, people talk about, in particular, if they 
14 or 15, they join a group of other adolescents in the field mm -hmm. drinking cider. Uh, they, they find that they're the last one to leave and they want more cider. And whereas these more experienced drinkers uh, might be accustomed to finishing up at midnight and going home, the new novice wants more and more and uh, quickly becomes uh, the main drinker. And um, so a lot, a lot of people that I meet in Ireland seem to start their drinking in, in fields at the age of 14 or 15 with cheap, cheap, um, cheap cider, and they do recall the euphoric uh, e effect. Um, I'm just trying to recollect my own first drink was stealing a, a bottle of Guinness from my father and going up the laneway with my friend and feeling like a real man. But I think uh, that was only one bottle, but I think it was the association with alcohol. Hey, we're 12 years of age and we're drinking and now we're men. <laughs> right. It, yeah, the, and, and in, in many, in our culture today, it's the rite of passage. Yes. It's an initiation rite because we've lost those uh, yes. rites in our culture. Yeah. I, I become a man. Uh, become free when, when I've, I've got that relationship with, with alcohol or drugs. So the association is there, particularly mm. with adolescents passing their examinations or finishing their examinations. There's um, a big a big drinking culture to go out and get uh, pretty drunk and acceptance of it as well, that you know, kids end up in the front gardens of houses, sleeping all night in the front garden. Fortunately, it's summertime. And yeah, so there's this association with celebration of the rite of passage. And that, that remains in the, in the psyche of, of the people and it's associated with it. So drinking is always associated with good times, usually. Right. Even at, even at funerals, good times. And, and the more it, uh, the better it is, the better the feeling is, the more the euphoria the more likely one is to go back to that, to re-experience it, you know? That is to say, you, you usually don't get addicted to things that feel bad. You get addicted to things that feel good. And, and in the case of the alcoholic, there's, there's that freeing element, the, the sociological pieces that you're pointing to that compound, magnify um, the effect of this thing. Yeah. Some people, oh, I, I started losing control and it was terrible, you know? Oh, they're not good candidates. Uh, I started losing control and it was wonderful. <laughs> and even Carl Jung himself, uh, you know, I, I write in my book uh, that he says, uh, I quote him if I may, I was yeah. wafted into a new and unexpected state of consciousness. There was no longer any inside or outside, no longer an I and the others. Caution and timidity were gone, and the earth and sky, the universe and everything in it that creeps and flies, revolves, rises or falls, had all become one. I was shamefully, gloriously, triumphantly drunk. <laughs> that sounds like an LSD experience, that everything yeah. had become one. But he does say that his... Um, his night of drunkenness ended in, in some problem that he can't remember. Um, but that description mm -hmm. leads me to think he would have some sort of inkling and understanding of the person with an alcohol problem. Because many therapists will say to a person with an alcohol problem, 
I can't understand. Why can't you just simply just stop drinking after the second drink? That's what I do. <laughs> right. And right. the person with alcohol problem says, you don't really get it, do you? And they say, yes, I do get it. Stop after two drinks or one. <laughs> the person with an alcohol problem with the genetic predisposition, mm -hmm. once they have one drink, no matter what their intention was to only have one or two drinks, as the therapist might themselves uh, go for, the fact is that they become almost like a different person that the person who made the decision to only have one drink is now a person with plus one drink. And it's almost as though they're a different person and they begin to lose control and say things to themselves like, oh, in for a penny, in for a pound. And if they have a partner at home, they say, oh, might as well stay in the pub, might as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb or whatever the expression is. Or, and so, they can find reasons to carry on drinking, no problems whatsoever for them. But it is, uh, Young's, Young's uh, writing about his first experience would indicate mm. that he, he, would, he would have a great understanding. And in fact, I would have a suspicion that he might have had some of the isms of, of alcoholism in that um, he was renowned for having a, a temper, for example, but we've no indications. And I'm not saying that he had an alcohol problem, but he did stop drinking at a certain age when he was a student and was known uh, in, in student circles as the beer barrel. <laughs> so, yeah, and I think you say in your book that he worked at a, a psychiatric hospital where you were not permitted to drink. As a, as a staff member. That's correct, yeah. That was a very, very uh, foresightful uh, clinician. Um, for Bells, I, 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 from memory, was his name. And uh, Freud criticized him uh, for his, what he called his hair shirt policy. Mm. And uh, Jung agreed with Freud at the time, but 50 years later wrote that, um, that this man was correct because uh, in the hospital at the time, they would have been treating um, people with alcohol problems and uh, Carl Jung got a lot of experience of treating people with alcohol problems and even today I find it quite amazing that in treatment centers you have um, you have um, uh, counselors <laughs> who are smoking well not so much nowadays but smoking cigarettes in front of their clients and uh, drinking quite quite liberally themselves and um, have, have no concept that uh, the, the example they're setting is, is not a good one, but and may be drawn to that particular area because they themselves have yeah. problems. Certainly, I've come across at, at least two clinicians who were the clinical directors of alcohol rehabs who themselves admitted that they had severe alcohol problems. I won't name them or anything. No, like but that. they and they weren't they weren't finding recovery. Is that, is that what that's what you're saying? They weren't, you know, in, uh, interesting. Uh, Frank Bookman, the founder of the Oxford Group, because he was working with alcoholics, a, a good number of alcoholics, he said, I'm going to refrain from drinking so that he could uh, experience some of what they're experiencing and not be a, a, a terrible role model. Uh, because I, 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 I agree with you fully 
that I've come across that as well. And it's, uh, you know, it's, people need to look at that. Yeah. Uh, they really and need to look same, at it. And at the same time, alcoholics in recovery will have to cope with alcohol in their home, their partners and um, social functions. And, but at a critical stage in the early stages of recovery, when, when they themselves can recognize other alcoholics and they're being treated by someone who is claiming to be able to treat them because they don't have a drink problem, but the alcoholic in recovery will know his fellow brother, so to speak. So it's, it's, a, it's a minor point, but I, I would think, yeah, setting a good example, like. Um, as, as happened in the clinic in Zurich was a good idea. Yeah, I agree. Uh, my wife has a longer sobriety than I do, you know, uh, and she's not an alcoholic, but, but she told me, and I don't know that I'd be sober, Ian, if she were still drinking. I, 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 I just think there were points along the way where uh, I would have gone over the end the edge, uh, yeah. but but we were kind of in this thing together. And she said, she, <laughs> you know, she said, uh, there's something a little hostile. If you're living with an alcoholic and you're continuing to drink, uh, I'll get some reaction from people on this one, but there's an element of hostility to it. You know, uh, I, when I was counseling, I would, I, I would, I would have after family week, I'd bring the family in, the spouse, and I'd say, look, I'm going to ask you not to drink for one year. And, 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 and as Charlie here or Mary here uh, goes back into society, I want you not drinking for that one year. After that, you can make your own choice. You make your own decision. But for that first year, just trust me on this. Go along and you be abstinent as well. Um, and many just continued the process. And many uh, kind of identify their own alcoholism, you know, <laughs> in that process. Well, I can't do it, you know. Well, all right. and, and I'm glad they saw you first, Bill, because I would probably be more harsh to them, particularly the wives, as they sit there. Sometimes I bring in the wives because the, the husband has seen me for four or five sessions yeah. and he's created this vision of a social drinker who likes two or three drinks, just like any other good guy. And I go, I'm going along. Mm -hmm. So let's bring in your wife and hear her story. So she comes in and tells her, three drinks? No, that's what he starts with, three drinks, right. three drinks. And then he, and so they give me the full story. But then I say to them, okay. So then the guy usually bows his head down and says, well, I say, you know, it sounds like there might be a drink problem there. And he goes, yeah, okay. So I then turn to the wife because she's feeling triumphant. And I say, now, the next point is that if he manages to succeed in abstaining from alcohol, the primary danger to him drinking again is unfortunately yourself. Yeah. And I go, what? And I say, yeah, because in my experience, the partners, wives in particular, will say, oh, it's Christmas time. You haven't had a drink for three months. You deserve one. And um, the psychology behind that is that the, and I'm talking very sexist now, I'm talking about wives. Uh, the wives have had the image, whether it's on the streets or in the society of being the poor hard done by wife with this horrible, terrible alcoholic husband. And then suddenly 
their role of oh, yeah. being the angel and the savior is no longer there. And um, hence there's an unconscious desire. Let's get back to familiar old times. And familiar comes from the word family. And they may have married the alcoholic because their father was alcoholic in turn. So it's all very familiar. But um, so I, I, I forewarned them on this. <laughs> I've seen it happen so often that, uh, you know, a guy comes back after Christmas and I go, what happened? So uh, my wife said, you know, I deserved one drink. Okay, yeah, oh, okay. absolutely. Uh, my mother was a chronic enabler. Chronic. Uh, and exactly as you describe, her father was alcoholic, both sides of the family there. And, and so I, I'm, I'm in recovery. The only way I got sober, Ian, was to get out of the family system. Right. And I stayed within that family dynamic. I, I don't know that I could have managed to, uh, to get sober, but I, I broke from it. Uh, and, and then I kept my distance from them. I had a sponsor who said, you know, don't even take money from them. Bill, it's time to grow up. You've been dependent on them. And my mother loved that dependency, just, just mm -hmm. like you're saying. Wouldn't take any money. She did have a good sense of humor. At three years sober, uh, I get a little package in the mail and I open it up. And uh, what she had sent me was a pair of apron strings. <laughs> okay, I, I, I should have saved them. I should have framed the suckers, you know, because damn it, I earned those. Uh, and it meant, it meant a lot to me. You know? And she didn't send you the scissors where she cut them off? No, no, she was <laughs> stabbing my father with those. Uh, <laughs> Are, are holding holding on to them for future, for future yeah time. but i you know i watched her do that i watched her enable my nephew it's just the pattern is there exactly yeah. what you're describing that uh that um we call it it's called the al-anon without program the codependent who who needs an addict in their lives to kind of keep the madness going and the control right. uh, on their part and then well, society itself is very, very uh, condoning of the alcoholic in Ireland. Um, the priest had an expression that it's a good man's failing. It's a good Yes. Oh, God, failing. yeah. And when um, one of the, um, and he went out to various churches in um, very salubrious areas in, in Dublin, he was told by the parish priest, Oh, sure, there's no alcoholics. There's no alcoholics in, in, <laughs> right. in, in, in our area, in our church. You know, no, no. Why, don't, why don't you go up there to the Protestant Northern Ireland and, right. and <laughs> might do better there? Which <laughs> was the denial. You, you, uh, you list some uh, characteristics of, uh, of um, alcoholics in your, in your book. Uh, we might just tick through these kind of kind of quickly. But uh, defiance is one uh, that the, psychologically there's this uh, there's some battles going on uh, in in the shadow area, I guess. And so they're telling everybody, no, um, it's not my fault. I'm having difficulty at work. That's because of the boss. Uh, oh, I crashed the car. That was because. That was because that lamppost had just been built the night before. It shouldn't have been. It shouldn't have been on the footpath. Um, uh, the, the 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 partner 
is complaining that they're spending too much time in the pub and they're saying, well, I wouldn't spend so much time in the pub if you weren't nagging me. So we have all this denial and defiance about giving up. So that's, that, is the first, that is the first step and pretty obvious. And it is so strong that it's, it's amazing when you confront it in, I'm sure you have in your first sessions with clients to say, you know, uh, I'll do anything. I'll do anything, I'll do anything but stop drinking. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I will change and I will, will um, uh, uh, get to work and, and early and um, be, be nicer to, to people, but no, I won't stop drinking. So that's, that is denial. And it is one of the first stages of alcoholism that, uh, that we see. And the defiance, of course, is linked to that because they're defying everybody who is encouraging them to uh, stop drinking. And that, so that's, uh, you, you mentioned also problems with authority. And, and then an inner restlessness and an irritability. If I'm not drinking, uh, how am I feeling? I mean, part of it may be withdrawal, but, but even after that, there's an AA speaker called Clancy who um, speaks about a wi winding up, winding up metal coil in his stomach that when mm. he stops drinking, metal coil in his stomach that gets wound up and, and gets him very irritable with his family and children. And that, that sort of stress and strain uh, provokes him to have the calming drink, the alcohol that calms him temporarily. Now, is that a peculiar, is that a peculiar physical uh, reaction for alcoholics only? I don't think so. I think many no. people have this and certainly uh, doctors are able to prescribe tranquilizers to many, many people. So what percentage of the population have this, but alcoholics seem to cope with it, with drinking and indeed, the depression as well. They say, if alcohol wasn't available, the number of people who would be uh, depressed and in hospital for the depression because of self-medication would be phenomenal. But yeah, uh, there is this restless discontent simply because within the person themselves, mm. it's their ego and they're separate from their true self. So they'll always have this irritation. It's an energy that's saying, hey, you're actually on the wrong path if they analyze it and to allow the true self to, um, to come into existence. So part of Part of giving up alcohol is a surrendering of part of the ego to the true self. And um, that's like a mini debt of the ego. And uh, it, that allows the true self then to, to manage and help manage and guide their lives. And that's what AA is about. That's what the individuation process is about, is really allowing the true higher self which is within us all, the God within, that's in touch with everything that's out there with the greater earth globe energy. And um, so if the person is still acting as though they are a mini little God onto themselves, and many people with alcohol problems seem to be uh, drifting towards the atheistic approach, and there's nothing wrong with that at all, but it means that, hey, I'm not gonna surrender to a power greater than myself. I'm going to do it my way. There's, there's more and more atheist agnostic uh, growth, uh, particularly in Europe, 
Uh, you're seeing it in the United States. Uh, the big book and such comes out in 39. There's been a, a dramatic shift in, in our relationship to religion, spirituality, those kinds of things that's happened over those 80 some odd years uh, that uh, does make it a little tricky for, for people coming into the program. We will get into that when we get to uh, steps two and three, because I think it's absolutely critical. And I think Jung has something important uh, to contribute to that. So I'm, I am really looking forward to that, but there, there seems to be the necessity for, um, and I'm gonna put this in quotes, hitting bottom or coming to a crisis uh, that I am then ready to change. And you speak, you speak in there about the readiness for change model, just, just kind of briefly, but, but uh, it's, fa it's always fascinated me, uh, what does it take to get someone over that line? There was a guy who uh, came into treatment and he, he presented because he had gotten drunk and missed his son's birthday. And he had been raised in an alcoholic home and he had sworn to the deepest part of himself that my drinking will never affect my relationship with my kids. And it did, and he became a puddle. Uh, and he got it more than people for whom the consequences had been phenomenal, you know? So it, it doesn't really matter what it is that, that brings it about. It's the depth of it on the ego. That ego that's been running my life has got to say, help, I can't do this thing. I need help. Would you agree with that, yeah? Yeah, and I like that um, to do with one's children. Often people give up drinking at the birth of a child. Mm. Realize they are having a rebirth themselves. Um, again, if you listen to Clancy on, as an AA speaker, he talks about the death of his son. And it's very poignant. He, he, he was in a, a drunk cell, speaking from memory, he was in a drunk cell. And um, the next morning, the police come to him and say, hey, we couldn't find you last night. We found you now. Uh, your son died last night. Mm. And, um, he pledged that he would never drink again. But he did. But he, he had that as his milestone, that the death of his son, that he wasn't there for him. Similarly, in, in my book, I refer to a person who was supposed to bring his son up to see the visit of the Pope, Pope Paul, in 1979. And he arrived drunk and couldn't bring his son. And, he, and, and that was the turning point. So the reaching the rock bottom, incidentally, that expression rock bottom is lovely. When it comes from, I believe, the Australian mining, they'd be mining for gold and sort of getting the best out of things and hoping for gold. And then suddenly they hit a rock and this is the bottom. They can't go any further. So it, it means that they've hit a rock bottom. They're not prepared to go any further um, drilling drilling their, their lives in, into further misery. And um, people's rock bottoms can be 
can be various can be various things. Um, I have I have a relative who was at a party and went out in a veranda and fell through a neighbor's uh, conservatory windows and landed you know 14 feet on the floor. That was their bottom, their rock bottom. Um, so people at various rock bottoms, it could be that the police bring them in for uh, drink driving, it could be they lose their job, it could be they lose their partner, um, various, various reasons that somehow sense gets through to them. And it's at those critical points they go, okay, I'm no longer in charge of alcohol, alcohol is in charge of me, my life has become unmanageable, and I'm going to try to stop drinking. So it's a, a crushing of the ego, would you say? It's a defeat of the ego that is now realized in the individual, all right? I think so. Yes. Now, Jung makes a great uh, deal about inflation. So let's talk about this. So here we have an ego, and whatever the situation is that it's come up against, and it, Wilson uses a brilliant phrase, and it's a problem that I can't get over, under, or around, but I must go through. And that's, um, that's the thing that had been avoided up until now. But it's not a one-time event, is it? This, 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 when this ego collapses or... Uh, uh, is confronted with the, the greater reality, the, even the greater self, you know, uh, there is a tendency for reinflation along the way. Would, would you not agree with that? that um, Absolutely. The ego, the, ego, the ego has been sent on a mission mm. by this true self, and it's been operating, as it sees it, successfully for 30 or 40 years. But I keep referring to midlife. Now, I know that people can come into AA in their 20s, etc. But there seems to be almost a biological, physiological, um, archetypal built-in piece to us that says around about 40, we understand we're not going to live forever. Our mortality is now facing us and we move towards the spiritual and we begin to withdraw from the world. However, the person with the alcohol problem, their ego is inflated by alcohol. So the more alcohol they drink, the bigger their ego becomes and they go, I'm in charge of the world. <laughs> I'm in charge at least of my own life, they think. But at the same time, the feedback they're getting is your life is becoming unmanageable. You're, you're losing your job. You're up for drinking, driving. You're losing your 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 marriage. Your children are are, are um, alienated from you. So the ego begins to, even though at that stage becomes even more inflated to try and cope. And then at some stage, it hands over its direction of the life back to the back to the higher power. William James was the first one to call it the higher power. I'm calling it what Jung would call it, the true self, the higher self with a capital S. And once that, once that, once that move is made to invite the higher power into one's life, then through intuition, things begin 
to get solved solutions come about because the true self has got a wisdom going back 5 million years that is connected to, it is, you can call it the God image, the God figure, but it is related to collective unconsciousness. So once the ego says, okay, I'm going to invite the higher power, the true self into my life and listen to it through prayer, meditation, by whatever means, then life starts to go smoothly. But alcohol has got to be forsaken by the true alcoholic in order to allow the real self to come in, to give it room. Yes, but, but, but the point I want to explore is some people say, okay, in relation to alcohol that has happened, but this relationship of... of um, aligning the the ego with the greater self in this new relationship that you're describing that is not a one-shot deal that is a lifelong process absolutely and, and it's marked by uh inflation followed by deflation that's the point i want to make that that uh, it's not that my life was unmanageable 10 years ago when I quit drinking or 20 years ago when I got off of drugs. It's unmanageable today if this alignment is not proper. You know, Edinger calls it the ego self access, yes. the relationship. That's critical. Yes. You know? Yeah. I think um, Stephanie Brown wrote about this phase of the alcohol treatment, the the, the lapsing, the relapsing, and eventually, yeah. eventually coming to a good, a good realignment or a good balance with the um, between the ego and the consciousness and and the greater consciousness, the, the greater self. So Carl Jung used the phrase again to repeat it: "Spiritus contra spiritum." One spirit contradicts the other. So he's referring to the spirit, and I'm saying the true self. And right. I'm saying alcohol spirit of alcohol contradicts suppresses the true self and in doing that it suppresses it and builds up the ego temporarily and so hence i would be saying that yes you have to remove the alcohol to have a permanent balance and realignment with the with the true self but even in sobriety life right. will not be a ball of roses or whatever the expression is. I mean, there will be difficulties, but they will be much, much more readily able to cope with them because you're But the ego, the ego, Ian, is going to reinflate. Then this, this is this is the point uh, that I, I think so many in addiction uh, miss that that uh, the necessity for the continuance of this process. It isn't a one-shot deal, you know? And I, I you know, sometimes you go to I meetings agree. and I, people, I absolutely yeah, agree. people just want to talk about, well, what happened to me 30 years ago? Well, I'm not interested in what happened to you 30 years ago. I'm more interested in what happened to you this morning when you got rageful, okay? Yes. Yes. Because your ego reinflated and you may not have had a drink, but God, I wouldn't want to be in, <laughs> in the neighborhood with you. <laughs> when that's and, going on and I, I and i think and i think the ego 
is looking for means to become more active. I mean, they say, for example, in AA that the, the, the drink is doing press-ups. So you better, you better uh, be going to, going to your meetings. But I would see it as whack-a-mally, that the ego will look for other ways and other substances to become addicted to. How and frequently do we see that? People get off of the alcohol and they go to something different. They go to the food, they put on 50 pounds. You know, they go to gambling, they go to sex. It's, it's, it's uh, some substitute for, for, for the, they, they turn AA or, or their recovery into uh, an addiction. I mean, that happens. I'm, I'm okay with people turning, turning AA into what would be called an addiction simply because the outcome is generally healthy. What I'm concerned with is that um, people can go into other, other uh, substances. I mean, for example, Bill, when he talks about uh, picking up golf clubs, he uses an expression, um, not just a passion for golf, but mm. it, it was overwhelming, almost an addiction. So right. people, people may be, may be uh, going, going into other areas that allows the ego to, to inflate and may bring them back through a circuitous route back to drinking. So yeah, I would like to see more emphasis on what I call the whack-a-mally of addictions that it can pop up in various other ways and an acknowledgement of that. But AA does insist that it, it, it is about alcohol only. And I wonder right. about that, uh, whether people should be talking about the possibilities of other addictive processes and substances arising, but maybe they can do that more privately with their sponsors. Oh, I think so. I think so. And, and uh, where, it, where it happens, but AA is not there to do that. I mean, AA is there to, to deal with the alcoholism, you know, yep. uh, but, but we in recovery need to be aware of this tendency that we have to then shift the addiction somewhere else. Uh, I mean, it, it's quite normal, you know, and... Uh, of course, and, it's and, a lifelong process, a lifelong journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's the point uh, that, that I, I really uh, want to make. And that's, um, why, that's why people say, you know what, you got to keep coming back. I mean, it's as though other areas in our lives are aware of our need to have a spiritual program like AA. For example, uh, was it St. Ignatius of Loyola who had the spiritual practices? Yes, the exercises, the spiritual exercises. Exactly, and, and, and they would be similar in a way to AA. And then if you look at the, for example, uh, very popular group, the Freemasons, they would say at the beginning a person comes in the rough stone and their, their objective is to smooth them out. And so we have in, not to get too off the point, but I love alchemy, the alchemical process that it, you had these chemists trying to transform a rock, a stone into gold. Now, here's a lovely thing. I remember being at a lecture and going like saying, how could they spend 50 years of their lives 
burning this rock, trying to turn it into gold. And the lecturer said, ah, that's the point. They transformed themselves in doing this. They transformed themselves. They learned a lot from it because they weren't just burning the rock and bringing it into a red negredo state so they could bring it, bring it into gold. They were studying, they were reading, they were dedicated to their work. And similarly, when people go out to help other alcoholics in the 12 steps, um, when they go out to do the work that Bill Wilson did in the Bowery, they may not be successful, but I hear them saying, it kept me sober. And this, and the, and this, this, this is a point. So I think in various, in various uh, other areas, there's a recognition that uh, there is a lifelong process needed to become whole, to, to reduce the size of the ego, to get the ego in balance yes. with the, the greater self. And this is the individuation process of Carl Jung. And how he, how he did that was by connecting the unconscious with the conscious so that when a decision was being made, it was both unconscious and conscious that could be drawn on to make a decision. And I see this beautifully in the promises of AA where it says, we will intuitively know, we will intuitively know, forget the rest of it, mind you, we intuitively know how to make decisions that used, that to, used baffle. to baffle us. That's right. Yeah. So what is, what is happening there is that the individuation process in Alcoholics Anonymous is aligning the, the, the consciousness, you can call it the ego, with the true self so that intuitively correct decisions will be made. And this is what the individuation process of Carl Jung is all about. And how he brings that about is mainly through the analysis of dreams and looking at the dreams, as some people say, they're messages from God. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's an Arabic expression, I believe. But the ultimate aim is to have the ego and the true self at a good balance. Right, right. And that is that is also the 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 end goal of of the steps. Would, would you not agree? Yes, absolutely. It, yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. through prayer and meditation. And to to end goal of the step for me would be the 12th step would be constant thought of others. And um, Carl Jung would say as well that yes, of course, and other other theorists would say as we get older, we tend to withdraw a little bit from society. We're no longer on our knees praying we win the lottery. <laughs> At least I hope not, <laughs> because you know, we're not interested in, 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 in more and more wealth. We're interested in leaving a legacy, leaving a goodwill, leaving our knowledge in particular to other people. And this would be a healthy, a healthy outcome for, for a person in, in some theorists, I'm trying to remember the name, would say the final step is in this theory, uh, Erickson uh, starts off with children and then goes right. to the elderly and says integrity, integrity, that they're meaning whole, that the, not just that the ego is with the, with the, aligned with the, with the greater self, but also the masculine and feminine aspects of ourselves have also come into an alignment and that we are more balanced. So the individuation process is about becoming 
balanced overall, balanced in our sexuality, balanced in our mentality, balanced physically. And this is, this is what I hope in going through the steps in, in the re remaining episodes, we will kind of keep our eye on. That step 12 is, is, yes, it's about not drinking and all that good stuff and helping others, but it's also about growing. It's becoming who we were always meant to be. And if people can grab a hold of that concept, that this is a lifelong process of growth. And what Wilson said is AA is just a spiritual kindergarten. That's what we're running here, a spiritual kindergarten. Don't stay in kindergarten. Recognize that there are teachers and books and things of that nature that, that you're going to grow into. See, I, th I just think it's so important. And that's where I think people can get stuck. I got stuck, uh, you know, at 20 years sober, it was like, is this all there is? And, and the history opened up a new dimension and Carl Jung opened up a new dimension and a re-examination of intelligent Christianity opened up <laughs> a new dimension. But I had to let go of some of those uh, other things and, and grow beyond. So that's, that's what uh, I think I'm interested in. I think that's what the... It is very, very steady progress, but as you say, not perfection. Oh, that's right. God is perfection. Yes. And Only uh, God is, is the perfection. And Jung might even question that. <laughs> and I, I like that. Supposedly, the Chinese, uh, when they print a book, they always make one error. And the reason they do that is to say, ah, only God is perfect. <laughs> and it is, it is like we are trying to perfect ourselves. That's why I like the idea of the uh, Masonic idea of molding the stone into yeah. a smooth stone. We're always smoothing out ourselves. And yes, we do have our temperamental relapses. Absolutely. Right. Very, very far from perfection. But uh, yeah, the 12, the 12 steps are a great gift to mankind through, some would say, uh, the, the uh, messenger of Bill Wilson, that he had a divine message to bring to us based on the Oxford group and Marcus yeah. Aurelius and many other uh, good, good, good spiritual writers. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, so in, in future episodes now, we're gonna, we're gonna start going through the steps. We've uh, kind of been launched with step one. There's, there's some negativity to that. My God, I think the message of step one in a word is hopelessness, all right? But you can't stay there. How do you move from hopelessness to hope? Uh, and then ultimately to transformation. And to me, that is the, the journey through the steps and, uh, and the journey through life, you know, so that at the end, like you're saying, Ian, we can look back and say, no, I've, uh, uh, I've, uh, I've accomplished what I came here to do, you know, which was uh, uh, do the will <laughs> of the one who sent me. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So, Oh. On that point, some I once heard someone describe it that um, God got bored once and he split himself up into billions of little people, us, and he sent us out into the world. And our function is to come back, but not just to come back, 
but to make God a better being. I mean, well, it's mind like, blowing. It's mind blowing. But but if you read, well, I'm sure you have uh, Jung's answer to Job. Mm -hmm. uh, you're kind of getting into some of that. That um, we're in this together. Right. And what you just described is exactly that. God is not off in some distant realm. That realm is alive in us. And that's what we have to find and nurture and develop. And, uh, and so we have to learn how to love. Ultimately, yeah. we have to learn how to love. And maybe, you know, maybe if he sent us Jesus Christ, maybe he sent us the 12 steps just to give us a nudge in the right direction. Well, you need a map. <laughs> that's, that's to me. That's what the steps are. They're 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 a map to yes. lead you uh, in into uh, into life. So listen, we're gonna. We're, uh, uh, I thank you uh, again, Ian, for uh, uh, bringing us uh, your your knowledge and and wisdom uh, on on this journey. It's it's going to be very very helpful. Has been to many. I've, I've had some nice comments. From people. Um, if anyone would like to uh, say hi to Ian, uh, send me a note. I'll, I'll pass it on to him. Uh, let him know that his work is uh, is having some effect here. You can write write me at uh, twowayprayer at gmail.com. I get a very big ego if you do it that way because... Well, I'll, I'll only send you the criticisms. I'll send you the critics. <laughs> But I can say, rather like the Gnostics, they can write to me directly. <laughs> I don't need an intermediary. Well, I didn't want. I didn't want. I didn't want to put your your email. I have an email there. called Ian at pips.ie. It's a very simple one. That's Ian at pips.ie. And if they want to send me an email, please feel free to do so. Okay, great, great. Didn't didn't want to didn't want to lay that on you without. Uh, Not at all. No, I'm I'm always open to receiving uh, feedback and information and emails. No problems whatsoever ever. Great. Okay. Well, I thank you guys uh, for listening, and I hope uh, some of this information on step one was, was helpful. And uh, on to two and three in our in our next episode. So, uh, God bless. Uh,